Well, good morning again. See, our scripture reading as we continue through Genesis is in Genesis 11 this morning. So, uh, read with me starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord, got, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It's God's Word. I, uh, I don't know about you, but I watched more news this week than I ever care to watch. And I was, I was just thinking about, uh, well, there's a line from T.S. Eliot in the choruses of the rock, I don't know, which is about 100 years old at this point, and he says, uh, he's reflecting or lamenting, you know, where is the knowledge and information? <laughs> where is the wisdom and knowledge? Uh, but we have God's Word. So let's go to him in prayer so we can hear uh, the wisdom that is from above. Father, we need you to speak to us through your Word. We need your Spirit to be at work to open our hearts to receive it. And most of all, we pray that you would make clear the good news of Jesus to draw us closer to you, we ask in his name. Amen. You ever, uh, you ever had the experience of taking a hit to your pride? You don't usually forget it. Because uh, you either learn a lesson from it Uh, Or it's one of those grudges that you nurse for a long time. Of course, at that point, perhaps you're not willing to admit that it is your pride that was hurt. Um, Whatever the case may be, uh, I remember distinctly my freshman fall at college. Now, I had been a good student through high school, uh, and it it just kind of came easy to me in high school. Never really had to study that hard, never really had to, felt like I had to work super hard to, to get good grades, and I was kind of proud of being a good student. And um, most of the classes, of course, that I was in were uh, kind of freshman-type classes, but I, I did take this one class on World War II history, and I uh, was enjoying it, it was a great class, but I took the first exam and got it back, and, uh, and it was a B-. minus. Not the worst grade, but not great, you know? Just very 
average. Uh, and I was surprised. Because I'm a good student. And it was kind of a wake-up call, right? It was sort of a pinprick in my ego about who I was as a student. I started to realize how much I had to learn about studying. Uh, how, much I, how much I needed to start to figure out about how to keep up with the reading and all these other things that go into it, right? Just that little pinprick, though. And it's deflating. You know, pride is a strange thing. Um, a lot of theologians have called it the most fundamental sin. The sort of sin that's underneath all of them. Uh, whatever the merits of that are, it is true that pride affects all of us. And it has many guises. Sometimes it's loud. It's overt. It's thumping your chest. But other times it's subtle. Worming its way even into the shyest heart. But pride, you know, it's, it's funny because we can be proud of things which are good. You're proud of others, right, that you know and love and the, their accomplishments, and that's a good thing. But being proud of something and being proud are two very different things, although very subtly connected often, aren't they? This is a story about being gathered in pride and being scattered in mercy but as we will see, it is also about being gathered again in grace. So gathered in pride, scattered in mercy, gathered again in grace. So it is a story about pride. Uh, this is sometime, we don't know how long, after the flood. Noah and his kids have had kids. Uh, and what we get is this picture of, uh, of the ancient Mesopotamia of ancient Mesopotamia. That is essentially in Iraq. Um, when you hear about these places like Assyria and Babylon, they're all in what is now modern-day Iraq. Uh, and some of the oldest civilizations we know are in that part of the world, uh, along the Euphrates River, uh, some, of the, some of the oldest. And what we get is a description of the city being built up. And the people being particularly proud of uh, this temple that they're building. It is a tower, but every commentator will agree this is what we, we call a ziggurat. It's kind of a step pyramid. So in, unlike the Egyptian ones, which are, you know, straight angular lines uh, down, these were built as sort of a step. Uh, there, are, there are other cultures in the world that built similar types of pyramids, but this was really common in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, so this is a temple to gods, well, or the gods, but it is really about them. What they're really concerned about is themselves. Because what they're saying is, we're going to build this thing and we are going to make our name great. That's a really important line. We're going to make our name great. Their goal is for their own selves, their own sense of being important, being significant. That's what they really want, is to be significant themselves. The gods, of course, may be helpful in that, in their way of thinking, but 
It is about themselves. And so they're also building a city because what a city does is consolidates effort. And you can already see there's a kind of cultural, cultural technological growth, right? They are starting to build with brick instead of stone, uh, which just allows you to build more, right, and, and, and have a, a more reliable kind of architecture uh, they're starting to do all these other things, but it is also going to be a place where they will be great. And, you know, it would seem that great over others who are not part of this centralized power, religious and political. They want to make a name great. For them. I, you know, that is... What's hard to get our heads around is that that is... Exactly what we want to do is make our name great. That's what we're urged to do all over the place is to, is to well, we actually put our name on, on things, right? You know, it's a southern tradition to embroider people's initials into everything. Uh, it is, it, you know, to put their name on it. Well, you know, okay, that may be harmless enough in general, but we love putting our names on things. We want people to know that this was our work. Yeah, have you, maybe you've had the experience in your career of working hard on something and then somebody else seems to get all or most of the credit for it when you did most of the work. We want our name on it. I mean, of course, it gets more and more extravagant the more money is involved with it. Right, so you might give a lot of money and get your name on a hospital wing. Uh, I worked in campus ministry for years, and people would give money and get their names on buildings. <laughs> if you gave $125 million, you could get your name on a building. If you gave $325 million, as I saw happen, a whole school within the university got renamed after you. So if you've got a spare $325 million lying around, you can get your name on something really big. Uh, we love to put our name on things. But the point, of course, is because we want to be known and be considered significant. Our own personal significance is at the heart of it. That's what we want. We want to be known. We don't want to be obscure. And while you may not have an extra nine figures lying around to give out, to put your name on something. You do have an Instagram account. Well, maybe not, maybe not all of you. I don't know. But you do, we have all of these mechanisms, right, for being known. And what do we do but we posture to make sure people know that we're the, on the right side of whatever the issue is or that we're really smart or that we're really stylish or maybe that we're all of those things all at once. But we want to be known for being great. Ours, of course, is an image age. You are told that you have a personal brand that you're supposed to curate. Oh, boy. Well, you know, there's a funny thing, though. It's not just individually. It's also collectively. In fact... <laughs> Something is, something, there's something odd going on here that maybe isn't obvious. This is Babylon. The, the, the word Babel 
is also the Hebrew word for Babylon. I actually don't know why, I'm not entirely sure why trans, the translators here don't translate it the same way. It's the same word. Whatever Hebrew reader reads here is this is Babylon. And while that name won't come up again for a while in Old Testament history, when it does come back up, it is a pretty wicked, evil name. Uh, Babylon, you may, you know, I, I, if you know the Old Testament history, you know, they are the people that come in and destroy or finish destroying ancient Israel. And in the prophets, Babylon becomes a symbol of a wicked city, of an evil city. You can, you can read whole chapters about this. You can look at Isaiah 13 or Isaiah 21. You can go to Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51, and there's long descriptions of Babylon as a city of great evil that's going to be destroyed. It's not just there as well. In the New Testament, it's picked up. Symbolically, in 1 Peter 5, at the very end, Peter talks about those who are in Rome as being those who are in Babylon, who are in exile in Babylon. And Revelation picks up this idea in chapter 18 and echoes those old prophets. There's a whole chapter uh, that's about celebrating the fall, the downfall of Babylon as the symbolic city of evil. So that it is not just that pride is an individual problem, but it's also a collective problem. We take pride in all kinds of collective things, right? Our, our country, our region, our state, our political affiliations. Uh-oh. Been a little bit of that this week, hasn't there? Uh, churches can be sources of pride. And this is the thing, pride collects around those things that are actually good. Patriotism is not a bad thing. But pride can be. Your your views on how a country should be governed, not necessarily inherently a bad thing, but the pride that comes with it can be. It is a good thing to love your culture and your history, but to be proud is a whole other ballgame. And of course, individually, right, your achievements, your career, your talents, your family, your relationships, your spiritual growth, all of these are good things, but pride is always knocking at the door. So that the line between being proud of those good things and becoming proud is often really hard to distinguish. This, we skipped over, we finished up talking about the story of Noah, and we skipped over the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 is a genealogy, so I don't think anybody's uh, too worried about why we skipped over that. But uh, we've talked a little bit about why genealogies are there, but... They make for odd sermons. Um, The end of chapter 9 is a story about Noah. Later in life, he's planted a vineyard. Uh, He he starts making wine. And then uh, drinks too much. Gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. 
And his sons respond differently. One of them mocks him. The other covers him up. One covers him up because he... Well, they they respond differently because of how they view their father, right? One sees it as an opportunity for him to think of himself as better than his father. And the other chooses to cover his father. It is a, a, a microcosm of what we see here in macrocosm, isn't it? That pride feeds on contrast. That's one of the basic ways you know that pride has gotten a grip is because you define yourself, you define your group over against another. And when that creeps in, you know you've got pride on your hands. Because pride thrives on the contrast. As Jesus said and told in one parable about one man praying, right? I thank you, Lord, that I am not like those others. He is praying out of his pride. You know you're not simply proud of someone or something when it is only meaningful in contrast to those that it is not, those that it has defeated, those that it wants to defeat. So that's what's going on in this city. It is proud. But then God decides to do something. He decides to scatter it in his mercy. Did you notice God's perspective in verse 5? It's supposed to be funny. They think they're building this tower that's going to reach up to heaven. And then it describes it as God needing to come down in order to see this minuscule thing that they're doing, right? It's a joke, right? That they think, oh, this is so amazing, right? That we are building this tower to heaven. And to God, it is so insignificant that he can barely even see it. It's a, it's a joke. It's sarcasm. God has to come down to see, see what, what, what are they doing here? What is this insignificant thing that they think is so, such a big deal? One commentary says that, you know, this narrative captures simultaneously the absurdity and the gravity of it, right? And, and, and the way that God is coming down to, to, to be able to tell what's going on captures the absurdity of it. But, of course, the way that God talks about it ca- captures the gravity, the gravity of what they are doing, the pride that has taken over. You see, God's not threatened by it, right? That's obvious enough. This is insignificant when it comes to God. Oh, they think they're going to be like God, just like Adam and Eve did? I mean, come on, guys. No, God is not threatened by it, but instead he sees the potential of what we will do to one another. Right When he says that there is nothing that they propose that will, that will now be impossible for them, he's really saying they will convince themselves of their own greatness and do horrific things to one another in pursuit of it. It is in many ways the same problem we've been talking about. And we were told this, right? That the problems would not go away simply because of the flood. They're back. And so God's intervention here is to confuse their language, to frustrate 
their efforts to consolidate power, to consolidate worship. This is a work of mercy. I mean, I suppose in some sense you could call it judgment, but it's really a work of mercy. God is sending them out in order to keep them from dominating one another. Of course, there's a real irony in the midst of these passages as you think about the the story at the end of chapter 9 and Noah's sons and as you get through these genealogies and as you get to the nations being scattered that these passages have a pretty checkered history of interpretation, that even churches have, re, uh, have reinterpreted the fact of differences in racist ways. I mean, this is but leading up to the Civil War. This was part of the justification that many Christians gave for racism, for having pride over others, is that God is the one who's you know, cursed one race and set, kept them separated So bizarrely, even in the thing that God did to, out of his mercy, we turned it into an occasion of pride and domination. But I don't want to lose sight of of God's mercy. You see, the reason this is merciful is is not because God is keeping people separated in and of itself. It is because he is frustrating their pride. Having your pride unmasked is a mercy. It is a severe mercy, as the theologians say, but it is a mercy. It's the kind of tough love that we need. It's the kind of hard decisions you have to make as a parent, right, about what you will and won't let your kids get away with. There's a really famous chapter in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis on pride. It's a really good chapter. It's worth reading if you, if you have a copy of that lying around. But this is what he says. There's, he says, this is the one vice which no man in the world, of which no man in the world is free, but which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which he is more unconscious of in himself. The more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The unmasking of our pride really is a mercy from God. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's a mercy. The most obvious place then to start looking at what our pride is, is just what we've said. Where do you compare yourself to others? I mean, we can compare ourselves in almost any way we like, but there are some obvious ones, right? There's our money and our possessions. Who has more? Uh, There's our popularity, our relationships. There's our career and our accomplishments, the accolades that come along with that. There are all these places in which we compare ourselves, in which we either think of ourselves as better than others or resent the fact that others think someone else is better than us. There's also the mirror side of the reverse image of 
pride, the, the sort of self-aggrandizement of pride, that is despair. When we think about ourselves as never stacking up. You know, I was, so I was uh, at the end of middle school and in high school when the, the, the grunge rock revolution came around in the 90s. Uh, some of you may remember it, but uh, <laughs> some of you don't. But I remember, you know, Pearl Jam was like the biggest band around during the grunge revolution. And I remember at that time Eddie, reading an interview with Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam. And, uh, and they were, you know, they were trying to get away from the sort of glam rock thing and all the, you know, and, and just the whole self-image thing, that this manicured self-image of all these bands from the 80s and early 90s. And, uh, and he, said, he said, you know, sometimes I see my face on the cover of a magazine and I hate that guy. He hated it because he was starting to become like the thing that he hated. And it, it tells you something, right, that self-loathing is just as self-centered as self-aggrandizement. Now, I want, I want to be careful here. There, there, may be, there may be mental illness involved in some, of the, in, in some forms of self-loathing. Uh, and that needs to be taken into consideration. There may be mistreatment that you've experienced that's involved in that. I don't, I don't want to discount any of that. Yet what I do want to say, though, is it's in the logic of self-loathing, there is a focus on ourselves that takes over, a kind of tunnel vision. So if self-aggrandizement is the sinister version of pride, self-loathing is the tragic. Either way, it is that being stuck in the tunnel vision on ourselves that's how we start to identify pride, when, when I'm locked in and can't see anything else. And part of what we need to see is the absurdity of it all. You are not the only one in this world. You are not the only one affected by the things going on in your life. That goes for self-aggrandizement. It also goes for self-loathing, right? Is part of what we need to see is that we are not the only thing happening. That our lives are much bigger and interconnected with others. You know, part of starting to understand what our own pride is hearing other people. And the irony is we live in an age in which you are supposed to be unapologetically yourself. Expressing what it is that you think, what you feel, what you intuit. And while we're all expressing ourselves, we are listening to very few people. Especially, here's the deal, we especially need to listen to those that love us. When they're pointing out a problem, it comes from a place of love. Maybe then they're not completely right. But maybe they're not completely wrong. That self-critical stance It's something we're called to. That is the beginning of identifying pride. Is when we can actually take stock of what it is we think and feel and believe about the world. 
and ask hard questions about it, rather than living in an echo chamber of those who just reaffirm always everything that we are and everything we believe. So that scattering is a mercy of God, but here's the deal. The story doesn't end here. God's intention is not merely to send everybody to their room. God's intention is actually for humanity to be united, to be unified. Now, there's lots of ways, of course, in which humanity tries to unify, some of which begin with good intentions, with good causes, trying to address real problems and real evils. But so often, when we are grouped together around those things, we end up turning what is a good cause into an opposite injustice. The victim becomes the victimizer. It happens in small ways in our lives, and it happens in really large ways. But God has a different plan. And if you want to read about it, go to the beginning of Acts. The book of Acts begins with Jesus risen, right? He's defeated sin and death. He's accomplished everything. He is about to return to heaven. He has reclaimed God's authority over the world. And what does he do? He sends his disciples out to declare the good news in Jerusalem, in Judea. These are concentric circles out. In Samaria, their neighbors, to the ends of the earth. And then, as you get into chapter 2, when he sends the Holy Spirit that's going to empower them, motivate them to send them out, the most amazing thing happens. It's the middle of a feast, so there there are folks from all around the Greco Roman world who naturally speak other languages that are not Hebrew or Aramaic. And what happens? When the Spirit descends and the apostles start preaching, each is able to hear in their own language what they're saying. Isn't that profound? It's the exact opposite of what's happening here. It is the regathering of the nations. It's little surprise then, as we get to the book of Revelation and the vision of what the world is becoming in Jesus when it becomes a new heavens and new earth, that it's a city in contrast to Babylon that is the new Jerusalem that in which is gathered people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And the connection actually is quite clear near the beginning of the book when, when we get the, the most amazing vision of worship ever in the Bible. In chapter 5, when people are singing before the throne, they say, They're singing to Christ, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. You see, the difference is that this is a kingdom that God has brought together from everywhere. Every culture, every ethnicity. It's a place in which distinctiveness is not lost, but rather a distinct appreciation 
of the light of the world, the work of Jesus, is seen in all of its colors. Through the prism of the work that he is doing in each of us. Refracted through every culture. It hasn't lost its moral bearing. (laughs) The Spirit is at work. It has lost its pride. You see, the power of the kingdom is humility. And the reason that humility is what makes the kingdom of God so powerful is because it is what animated Jesus. It really is. In Philippians, when Paul is describing the humility and care that we should have for one another in Philippians 2, what does he say? You should have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The power of the kingdom is guaranteed because that is how Jesus was effective in his humility. And that's why he teaches about it. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus talks about humility? Let me just give you a taste. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The apostles pick it up. Peter and James quote something. We don't even know where it comes from. (laughs) They both quote it, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Paul says it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Humility is not simply, it's not simply the opposite of self-aggrandizing pride. The opposite of self-aggrandizing pride is self-loathing, and it's still pride. As, uh, as Keller puts it, the, op- the humility is not so much the opposite of pride in that sense. It is not thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking of ourselves less. You see the difference? You see, Jesus had humility not because he thought less of himself. Actually, whenever they ask Jesus about himself or whenever he talks about it, you think, "Uh, I wouldn't get away with saying that. And you know what? You wouldn't. (laughs) I wouldn't. No, no, no. It's not that he thought less of himself, but that he thought of himself less. He was not worried about his own name. Instead, he laid down his life. And his name is great because he laid down his life for you. That is what we're called into, is to lay down our lives for others, to think of others more. That is the power of the kingdom. And in a day and age when the, the name of the church, the reputation of the church, is damaged in many, many, many ways, Our power is not in trying to make our name great again, 
but to make the name of Jesus great. Humility is the real power of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are tempted to make our own names great. When we think about the kingdom of God, when we think about your work here, uh, I'll confess that ministers are some of the worst about this. But humility, we know, is the currency of your kingdom because it is the very heart of Jesus. Would you teach us to identify our pride, to see it for what it is, but to uproot it, not under our own power, but with the humility that you teach us by the Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.